lovely bunch there. Go with me to 1 Kings 19. Now, if you've got a great memory, you'll know that we were in 1 Kings 19 last week. We're going to revisit one of those verses, and we're also going to go a little further and dig a little deeper into what's going on here in this text. That's 1 Kings, and I want you to look here at 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the, in the row uh, under the seats there. Let me ask you to imagine something with me. You've done this as a kid, right? You had to pretend, right? I want you to pretend that you have someone that you love and they are innocent and they are beautiful to you and they are free. Like a little kid, right? Kids, they don't seem to have a care in the world, do they? We wake up, and the first thing to flood us on our smartphones and all of our devices and at work and all the various responsibilities is a bunch of stuff that rushes upon us almost like if you stepped in an ant bed, everything comes out, right? And every morning it seems when I step out of bed, it's like an ant bed of worry and concern. But not for a kid. Now they wake up, and it's a new day every day, and there's a freedom there. There's an innocence there. But then to watch, as we imagine together, this beautiful, free innocence, slowly, over a series of decisions, begin to be put into submission and to be encumbered by burdens, literally chained, broken, and hurt, and harmed. Now maybe for some of you, it doesn't take much for you to imagine that. For all of us have probably seen something to that degree played out in the lives of those that we love. Just be like this, or you can say amen at that point. The innocence taken... And their shame replaced with innocence. Where freedom was, and just this free-flowing life of every day's a new day, becomes a burden where one doesn't want to live. Well, we're not alone in seeing that, not only in the lives of our children, or the lives of our loved ones, or maybe even in our own past, in our own history, but also God. For you see... With Abraham, God calls out a family where there was no family. Remember? Oh, Abe and Sarah were barren. They couldn't have children. And they were in their 90s before they ever did. And the only reason they did was because of a miracle of God, him calling something out of nothing. Do you see the pattern? He likes to do that, right? There was nothing. And then he, what does he say? Let there be light. And there was light. He said, let there be a family. And out of a barren old man and old woman, God creates a nation. That is Israel. And he calls them his firstborn. If you read the Old Testament, 
God is proud of Israel. He loves Israel. And of course, it doesn't take long before Israel's innocence is lost. It doesn't take long as we're flipping through the story of Israel's history to see that where they were free, now they become enslaved. And they're enslaved by the Pharaoh of Egypt. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Which is great hope for some of us who have watched the innocence be taken from those we love or the slavery of chains be put on someone that we love through addiction, through broken marriages or families or abuse or a host of other injustices. (laughs) There is hope because God is still on the throne. And when God is still on the throne, the story isn't over. You understand why? Is because when he steps out from his throne, seated at the Father's right hand, then the show's over. Then the story's over. But until that day, until that day, as long as we have breath in our lungs, there is hope. So just maybe imagine now someone that you love, that right now is in the chains of sin. And has been deceived by the enemy. Their father is no longer the father of light. But of darkness. Of the lie. God we need to know that there's hope. Amen. I need to know that there's hope. That the story isn't over. And it wasn't for his own people. You see. Because. God sends somebody. Doesn't he. A big somebody. It's Moses, right? And without going into the history of all of that, I'm going to assume a lot that you know about Moses. And God sends Moses to deliver them. And he does. And he leads them out. But God has something to show them. Because, I mean, when you get in that situation where, where a loved one is wayward, where a loved one has now become alienated, What do you do when they don't want to talk to you? When they have hidden themselves, remember, from last week? It's what we always do. It's what our first parents did. We hide from each other. What do you do? And I think the only answer that the Bible gives to us is you love. And that God will send a drought. (laughs) I mean, that's why they're in the desert, isn't it? They're in the wilderness, right? Remember, they disobey God, and he says to them, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness is where drought is. And it's not, like, it's not unlike our story here in 1 Kings, where they're in the middle of a drought. A three-year drought, right before this, in the pages of 17 and 18... Elijah, all of a sudden, burst on the scenes, burst upon the pages of the book of Kings here. You're going along and every king in the northern kingdom is bad. And by bad, we don't mean they didn't fix the potholes after the rain. Or they didn't lower taxes. What was the measure of a bad king was whether or not they followed Yahweh and his precepts. Because when the king followed Yahweh, guess what followed the people? And there was no good king in Israel in all of its history. Now, Israel, remember, is the northern kingdom particularly. 
it splits after Solomon. You have three kings that are part of the United Kingdom. That is Saul, David, and then Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom splits. And there's the northern kingdom, which is known as Israel. And then there's the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. And in Judah was where Jerusalem was, which was where the temple was, which was where the sacrifices were made. The only place that sacrifices could be made, by the way, until, that is, there came an evil king called Ahab. And his even eviler wife, who was a Phoenician, which was a no-no, and her gods, the Baals, or Baal, or Baal, or and, her, and her cons, uh, his consort, uh, Asherah. And they say, you know what? We don't have to go down to Jerusalem, where God has ordained worship of himself. Instead, we can do it from here. And we'll make Samaria, which was the old capital, we'll make it the place of worship. So, everybody doesn't have to go down there to worship Yahweh. Yahweh is right here with Baal and with Asherah. God has something to say about that, doesn't he? Because it's not true. And it's interesting how we like to buck against what God tells us plainly to do. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Oh, I can do that from home. I can do that while I watch my football show. I can worship God from my armchair, relaxing in my lazy boy. I would submit to you, no. No. Instead, gather together. (laughs) Now, you can gather together in your lazy chair if that's the purpose is to come under the name of Jesus Christ and to worship him. That can happen anywhere you're correct. But it's funny how we play games and we, what we call in religion, syncretize things. And we mix them and say, well, we can do both. We can worship the gods of the stars and the patterns of nature along with the one who created nature. And I would submit to you again, that is called sorcery. And if I'm not mistaken, in our reading today... It says this, sorcery. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is an exclusivity to following Jesus Christ. We are to be married to him and to him alone. You say, why monogamy now? Because Marriage is a picture of our relationship to God and his relationship to us. If it's not monogamous, it doesn't accurately image our relationship to him. Because he has exclusively tied himself to us. You say, how? Because he became one of us. He didn't become a tree. He didn't become a cat. He didn't become an ostrich. Instead, he became a human. And that for all time. It's why Jesus Christ, within the creed, gets the preeminence. 
Did you see the bulk of that? You start out with the Father, and he gets a little bitty section. And then the Son gets the big section. And then the Spirit gets the section that deals with us and the church and everlasting life and resurrection. (laughs) What does God do to save his child? He has to show them their need. How do you how can you get someone to see that they're even lost if they don't think they're lost? It's a sad thing when someone is bumbling through life and they don't even know that they are lost. They don't even know that they need to be saved. Like a kid wandering into the street, all they can see is the ball. They don't see the truck. They don't hear the dad. Stop! God, help us. Reveal to us our need for you. What what will it take, I wonder, for some of us to see our true need for God? The bank account's full. There's food in the fridge. There's retirement for later. But there's an empty heart. Sell it all for the fullness of Christ. Isn't that what he calls us to? I think it is. God, would you be our parent in such a way that you would send a drought or send us into the wilderness to save us? Wouldn't that be worth it? To lose the things of this world but gain Christ? Doesn't that sound familiar to the teachings of St. Paul years later? Well, right at the center of this drought in Israel, this three-year drought, is a person. His name is Elijah. So again, when God needs to save his people because they now have syncretized Yahweh worship with Canaanite worship, they say, we can do both. And you know, the world, even to this day, is still very pleased when we say, you can serve this God or that God and Jesus. They're fine with that. But as soon as you make it monogamous, as soon as you make it exclusive, you become old hat, arcane. Oh, that's the old way. There's a new way of merging all things. And I would submit to you, it's not an old way at all, except for that old demon of syncretism. That, God uses Elijah... To defeat with fire. (laughs) You remember, right? We talked about it last week. Mount Carmel. And by the way, you know why it was a drought? Because Baal was the god of what? Storm. You see, just like the ten plagues, God's doing these things not just, huh, I guess I'll just send hail today. or I'll tell the sun to not shine. No, he was defeating Amon Ray, or Ra, as they called him, the god of the sun, who was the disc that flew through the sky every day without fail, except for when Yahweh said, stop. Or the Nile, who was the life-giving mother 
literally that Egypt exists upon within a 30 mile radius at the time of that water system. Literally at the breast of the mother until God says, no, I am your source of water and sustenance, not the gods of this world. And so, in order to teach him a lesson, God says, no, 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 you're worshiping Baal, the storm god. Watch this. Three years, no rain. What do you do, die? And that's the point. God, would you help the gods of this world that we worship and put forward as true to dry up in our land? And then, send your rain and pour out your Holy Spirit, O God, upon us when we're thirsty. For he comes to those who are thirsty. Are we tired of drinking at the trough of this world? God help us be. Elijah is known as the troubler of Israel. So he, so Ahab calls him. Ahab sees him come and says, Oh, troubler of Israel. And he's quick to say, You're the one troubling Israel, sir. With your syncretism. With your non-exclusive devotion to Yahweh. In other words, Ahab was willing to serve Yahweh when it was convenient. And how often are we, just like I shared with the children moments ago, when it's convenient, we cry out for God. When the money starts drying up, when we lose the job, we know where to turn. But we're unwilling to give him thanks and praise when things are going well. What kind of lover are we? A leech. Unless he can turn us inside out. And he must. We must die to ourselves so that he might increase and we might decrease. You know, being humble isn't thinking less about yourself in a degrading way. It's thinking about yourself less. And how hard that is, though, isn't it? Because the first thing that comes to mind is, what's that going to do to me? Notice here in 1 Kings 19, we, we jump right into the story. As I said, the, you know, the pages in 17 burst open with this guy wearing a hairy cloak. Much like John the Baptist, Remember? And he has, a, he has a one single rope around him, which represents his prophetic office. And he comes on the scene saying, there's not going to be rain for three years. In other words, Baal is dead, and I'm here to tell you he is. And then I'm here to show you with fire from God on Mount Carmel. Then Jezebel makes an accusation against him. He runs way down south to Mount Sinai, where God had spoken to his people first. And where Moses himself had been put in the cleft of the rock to see the back of God. And now he goes into a cave and God is in the cave with him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so we pick up here. He's at the mouth of the cave now because God says, well, come out and let me show you myself. And there's an earthquake and there's a windstorm and there's fire. God is not in any of the fireworks 
of that. Instead, God whispers to him. And you know what? The only way to hear a whisper is to get close, right? You got to be real close to, to hear a whisper. So he calls out. Elijah comes out, wraps his face, comes out. And here's what happens. Here's what God says in that whisper. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And then he says in 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now what's going on here? See, you thought in the whisper it'd be something like, Hey, I like you a lot, you know. Or it's like, you're an awesome guy, Elijah, you know. That's not what God says. Instead, the first words out of his mouth are go. This sounds very similar to what happens in Moses' argumentation with God. And he finally submits to God. And God says, go and return to Egypt. Where you just left. You see, God, when he whispers to us, always has somewhere for us to go. It's not meaningless words. He, he has a mission for you. He's not just whispering sweet nothings in your ear. Instead, if we can hear him, if we'll come out of our cave of hiding, he will whisper to us and say, go. And sometimes he'll even say, return to those people who treated you wrong. Return to that situation. It's always bittersweet at the end of youth camp to see these students get a vision from God. Truly. It's not manipulation. They see God and a glimpse of God. And God nudges them and he speaks to them. And, and many of them respond to God. And, and they're in love and there's this, this transformation that takes place. It's not all of a sudden that they know everything. Trust me. When it comes to testimony time, you realize that real quick. It's like, hey, get the mic from that guy. He has no idea what he's talking about. But instead, the one thing that comes out just bleeds out unintentionally on their part when they fall in love with God is love. But then to know that they're going to return right into a situation from which drained their love in the first part. Took their innocence. Enslaved them in sin. And it's only by the power of God and the community of God that they will be sustained. Now that's, that's a go mission for you. And I mean, as I'm pointing my finger at all of you and me. When they come back, it's us that will have to encourage them to hold their hand in discipleship. God tells Elijah to return, but he also tells him to go and anoint three people. He does the third one first. <laughs> now, the, the, you know, here's the thing. In, in Bible study, it's like, here's the way I remembered Elijah and Elisha. Because everybody oftentimes will get them confused, right? Uh, 
It's like, you know, um, here's the way I do it. J comes before eight, S, right? So it's like Elijah, Elisha. Well, just remember that and, you know, Shah comes before Jah. Jah comes before Shah. There you go, yeah. Thank you. I had to think about that real quick. And so Elijah's name means Yahweh, by the way. It has Yah- that's the Jah part in there is Yahweh, uh, which is pretty cool, follower of Yahweh. Um, but Elijah comes first, then Elisha. Now, remember, Elijah has already been like, hey, God, I need some help here. I'm in a bad place, so on and so forth. And, and God gives him his help he needs. Much like when Moses gets so frustrated with the people, you want water, you want water? Boom, boom, here comes water. Drink your water. God says, hey, bud, uh, let's have a conversation real quick. You're not going to go into the promised land. Moses, <laughs> of all people. Interestingly, Elijah won't actually anoint uh, Hazael or Jehu himself. It'll be Elisha. And Moses won't go into the promised land. Instead, it'll be his disciple, his mentee, Joshua. You know what? There's a lesson to be learned here. And that is, God wants to call people to himself... And he's going to use you to do it. God doesn't himself come to Elisha. Instead, notice the story here. So he departed, 19, from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. Now that, that basically means he was a person of substance. We don't know that he was rich exactly, but if you've got 12 yoke of oxen, and there's, there's differences here because some people say that the yoke could be one oxen, but it, at best there's 12, and these things are like trucks, okay? So imagine a business owner that owns 12 trucks or 12 tractors. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. When you own an ox, that is your tractor, that is your truck. Well, he's a person of substance, and he was with the 12th one. So he had other people working for him more than likely. Had a big farm. And remember, the rain's coming. And it had just come, so they're planting. And he's about, to, he's about to make the money. But what happens? Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle or his cloak, that hairy thing, on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? In other words, do you understand what I've done to you? We'll see when you come back or not. And how you come back. I love these soul-searching questions that you find in the Bible. I always just want to tell people what to do, you know what I mean? (laughs) And a lot of us want to be told what to do. Don't we? And the reason why is because we like checklists. Sometimes I will accomplish something in the day and then put it on the calendar that I did it. <laughs> Check. What'd you do on Tuesday? Oh, I got right. Actually, I did this, did that. We like checklists. The Bible very rarely will give us a checklist. 
most of the time the lists that it gives are like the fruit of the Spirit. Or the things that we shouldn't be doing, <laughs> which we don't like those lists. But you tell me to do a couple things, I'll get that done, and then I'm going to go back to being me. Because I don't want to deal with what's deep down inside of me. Elijah says, look, do you know what I've done to you here? Look at his response. This is, this is dramatic. And he returned, that is Elisha, from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled them and their flesh with the yokes of the oxen. And then he gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered to him or assisted him. You see what happens here? Elisha does understand, in fact, what this call is. And it is the call of a lifetime. And that's what the call to follow Jesus always is. It's a call of a lifetime. And the way he responds is the way we should respond. Here he is on his plow, his livelihood, his future, his sustenance. He takes it, breaks it, <laughs> builds a fire with these, you know, yoke, keeps the oxen together straight, breaks it, builds a fire, throws the oxen on there. Be like a business owner again taking his tractors and setting them on fire or giving them to somebody else. Because in this case, he says, hey, everybody gather around because guess what? I'm going to follow Elijah. I'm going to do the bidding of God. Because he understood it wasn't just about following Elijah. The call of God came through Elijah. So who he's really following is Jesus. And that's way, the way that discipleship works. When you hear the voice of God in a brother or in a sister, in the family of God, that's God's voice through them. When you disobey that voice that is matched with His voice, you disobey God. That's why we must be quick to listen. And constantly listen for the voice of God in the community of God, in the prophets of God. And so he takes it, burns it, boils it, does a big meal, and they all eat. And he's like, this is it, guys. I'm out. This is a call of a lifetime. And it was indeed. He wasn't returning. In other words, uh, to put it, to put it as Cortez so long ago put it, when he landed on the shores to take over the world over here, the new world, he said, guys, those boats we just came from that got us over here, burn them all. We ain't going back. There's no going back. Did you catch our reading today? Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow <laughs> and looks back is fit for the kingdom 
of God. Have you heard the call of God in your life? Because let me tell you, he's calling. But it's in a whisper. It takes us getting close to him. Draw nigh unto me and I will draw nigh unto you. Jeff and Terry Rains are with a mission organization called Zinzendorf, which is not just a made-up name. <laughs> it's actually a guy's, guy's name. It's a guy's last name. And one of the famous things that this dude said, Zinzendorf, he said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what he told all his preachers. And it's interesting, we'll see this next week with Elijah's exit. There's nothing left but a cloak. And that thing isn't even around today. Nothing left of Jesus either but his followers and our witness. Nothing left of Moses but the witness of Moses and the testimony of Moses. Why? Because we're not idolatrous. Boy, if they would have had something of Elijah, they would have worshipped. If we knew where Moses was, we'd pilgrimage. It's what we do. Nothing. It must be passed on. The person that got the call is not the most important thing in the call. It's the call of God. It's the voice of God in our life. Man, if you could hear the voice of of God today, what would that be worth? If you knew the call of God, what in the world would be worth holding on to? Wouldn't you want to burn it all down for the sake of the kingdom of God? That's what Elisha did. It's what the followers of Jesus do. They had all things in common. When the Spirit descends, the first Thing that is touched are their possessions. They just start giving things away. And man, that's a tough one, isn't it? It's hard for us, some of us, even to get to 10%, which is the ground floor of giving in the Bible. Ground floor. Like that's Old Testament right there. New Testament is that it is all God's. And boy, that's easy to roll off the tongue. It's more difficult to pull out the wallet. And it doesn't mean we haphazardly give. But it means that we see all of our spending. All of our spending. As spending God's resources. How does that shape our week? But it doesn't stop with just our possessions. Because we possess more than money, don't we? We possess this beautiful thing called time. And time is life. When we give our time to God, guess what we're giving to Him? Our life. My goodness, I, I, I did some quick math and it may be wrong, so forgive me. It's not my strong point, Pete. 
if you live to 74 years old, there's not even 4,000 Sundays. That makes sense, like 3,800 and something. Just think about that. Not even 4,000 Sundays to gather in Jesus' name with the body of Christ to worship. What is more important on Sunday than worship? I'm just asking. Like, I'm not trying to make anybody mad, trust me. I've been other places on Sunday. I've traveled and done things like... I'm just saying, we have a precious thing here that God has given to us. Let's use it. Let's be there. Let's be there on purpose, not just lollygag through. If we burned it all, wouldn't we be there on purpose the next morning? I mean, if I'm with Cortez, I just saw my boat, my ticket back, go up in flames. It's like, all right, well, what's next? I got to build a house at some point, man. Well, we're going to go over here, and let's conquer there. And then we're going to go over there, and let's conquer there. If we're in it for the kingdom of God, then building our own kingdom is last. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. Do we believe that? We know that scripture. Do we obey it? Only when it's convenient, or when we hear his call? When we hear his voice. There was a, I want to say it was Billy Graham or so, I don't know, some preacher, he said, somebody said, what, what if you could be president of the United States of America? He said, I'd never stoop that low and leave my calling. I hope that's how we see our life in Jesus Christ. If we've burned it all down, then our orientation is different than if we've got storehouses, if we've got alternate plans. It's kind of like when you fall in love, you know. You don't know for sure if that's going to work out, right? You still got a couple numbers and a couple plans and things that are out there, right? Listen, when you get married and put this thing on... You burn it all down. You burn it all down. Be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. Repeat after me, right? No, <laughs> that's, what, that's my part, you know what I mean? <clears throat> like, repeat after me. But really, are we faithful to God as long as we live? This is the call of a lifetime. I think it's worth going all in. Right? It's all yours. I'm, be- I'm betting on God. And man, that's, he's got a great track record. Like when you do the odds of that, he never fails. <laughs> he never fails. Ever fails. And I just wonder if the Holy Spirit, I, I, just, just imagine with me again, just let's, let's be imaginative. I wonder if the Holy Spirit has walked through the aisles, just through the weak words and display of, of me doing this thing called preaching. And he didn't just throw a cloak here and throw a cloak there and say, you know what? It's a hairy thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this life in Jesus Christ. It, it's, it's not what you're going to be able to guess. And he throws it on you. Right as you're working on engineering and whatever that means. I don't know if you do it at a computer or you're hammering. I don't know what you do. I can't get in those places. I've tried to get in those places, but not so bad that I got arrested. But I wonder if the Holy Spirit has symbolically thrown his mantle on some of you today and said, like he did for me, February 28, 1999, I want it all. It's all or nothing now. We're to that point in the relationship. It's not me and. It's only me. Are we there with Jesus? If not, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Elisha knew, the same Holy Spirit that Elijah knew, can help us make Christ alone in our life. Don't bow the knee to other gods in this world. Are there gods that you tend toward? Are there some gods that are trying to squeeze into the places of your life? Put them to death. Put them to death. Are we willing to say yes, comma, Lord, without hesitation? Today. Today. Right now. It's, it's now or now. All of time is right now. This is all the time we've got. Right now. Are we willing to say yes, Lord? I don't know what all it means. Elisha didn't know what all it meant. But he knew the one who was asking. And he's a good, good father. I want us to say yes. I want us to make Lord Jesus the king, not only of the world, but of your heart, my heart. If that's your desire, I want you to... I want you to tell Jesus that right now. As our musicians are going to come and lead us in a response... If you would, just take a moment. Take some time of your life right now just to say to the Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. And Holy Spirit, would you meet us now with your power, with your fire. Baptize us in you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.